So uh, it was an interesting sequence of events in that last week was our, we were scheduled to start uh, our Colossian series, and we also had this opportunity to go and be a part of a new church being started in Temecula. So Kristen and I and the kids, we packed up and we drove to Temecula, and Bert opened up a new series in the book of Colossians for us. So it's sort of strange for me because that, that moment is oftentimes like a, a kickoff. It sets the table. It's the, the context that we build off of. And I've gotten a chance to spend a lot of time with Bert and go through his notes and listen to some things that he shared with you guys last week. So I have a, a good sense of what he said, but there's also this, this voice that is forming in a new series, in a new book. Uh, we chose Colossians for a reason. Uh, if you're ever wondering how our teaching goes, it's not like uh, Bible roulette where we just kind of spin a wheel and pick a book and we go through that book. We actually try and pray through where our church is at. What are the, what are the things that are needed uh, that, that we can look at prophetically and just see the, the call on us as a church or the, the situations in our, our world or our community and how can we press into those things and see God's word meet us in those places? So we just got done going through the book of Matthew, and Matthew was amazing. The upside-down kingdom that Jesus is bringing, it was Jesus' teaching, his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and all of the significance around that, and it shaped so much of who we are and what we believe. And so coming out of that, what we, what we wanted to do and where Colossians comes into play is, okay, how do we take the things that we learn about Jesus and how do we live them out in the world that we are in today. Because it's, you know, it's kind of one thing to be a Christian in a vacuum. It's, a one th- it's one thing to kind of understand the things that Jesus teaches and say, in an ideal world, yes, I would take all of those things and I would apply them directly to my life. It's another thing to say, how do I do that when we have a foster baby in the house? How do I do that when somebody in my family just passes away? How do I do that when I have a whole lot of other things that are important to me and Jesus is just trying to find space in my life? How do I follow Jesus when the world around me is very unkind to somebody that follows Jesus? There are a lot of questions that come in that are contextual. And what we see in the book of Colossians is we see Paul writing a letter. Uh, What Bert shared with you last week is that Paul had never been to Colossae at this point. He may have been there, but not as a missionary, not as a church planter. He did not go to Colossae and raise up disciples and plant a church and leave it like he did with some of the other churches, like Ephesus and like Thessalonica. He went to those places, he planted those churches, and his letters were like reunions. They were like callbacks. Hey, remember one. Colossians is not that. The way that we understand the story of Colossae getting started is that Paul was preaching and a young man named Epaphras traveled towns over to go and hear what was going on in this other community. And he heard the gospel from Paul, believed in Jesus, and took that back to Colossae. And he preached that gospel to people, and he helped them find Jesus and built a community that Paul then hears about. Colossae is a fascinating city. It was a city that was a major hub of trade and economics. People would come from all over the place to Colossae to do business. And then there was a massive earthquake, and Colossae's effectiveness as a city crumbled. You might imagine a city like Detroit. I don't know if any of you are from Michigan. Once a, a vibrant and full city over the last, what is it, eight to ten years, has been reduced to maybe a tenth of what it was in its glory days. 
There are empty buildings everywhere. Business has gone away. It's a challenging place. We had one of the, the guys looked up that you can buy a 3,000 square foot house for $7,000 in the city of Detroit. I mean, it's that kind of a situation. It's a shell of the city that it once was, and a whole bunch of people are about to move there. So um, <laughs> that's, that's what Colossae is. Some uh, great theologians have studied this and have said that the letter to the Colossians and the impact of the church itself supersedes the, uh, the city that came from Colossae. So in other words, Jesus did more with and through that city than should have been done in, a, in really a former metropolis, a former city. It's a, it's a fascinating place because there was not a big Jewish context. So most of the people that come to faith uh, in Colossae were not Jews, and they're coming straight from a pagan environment. They were worshiping other gods, Roman gods, Greek gods. They had all kinds of things that they would do to try and appease these angry gods or live up to their uh, wild expectations. They had so many things going on in their minds about what it meant to be spiritual or religious that when they come to faith in Jesus, they needed a sense of understanding about what they were actually believing. One of the things that we run into when we go to Nepal uh, or any, any Hindu context is that it's very easy to evangelize in Nepal. In any Hindu context, you can go to them and say, hey, you should believe in Jesus. And they say, yeah. And they add him to the million gods that they've already been worshiping. He sounds great and powerful. I'll absolutely worship him in addition to all these other gods that I'm worshiping. The challenge is for them to see Jesus as the one true God, as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, through whom all creation has been made and is sustained and held together. And so what we're going to see in the letter to Colossae is we're going to see Paul making sure that there is no room, there's no room for these other ideologies, these other gods, these other philosophies to rule and reign in our minds. Why is that important to us? I can't tell if you would think automatically, oh, that's totally our culture, or if you'd be like, yeah, that sounds really foreign to me. But regardless of what you think, I'm going to tell you, I think that's where we are at today. I think that a lot of people that come to faith in Jesus add Jesus to a list of things that are really important to you. And to me. I do this as well. It's called syncretism. It's, it's the idea that we just kind of mix Jesus in with our already beliefs, the things that we already think to be true. And what we have to do is we have to understand and identify Jesus as the one true authority in our lives. And from him flows everything. Absolutely everything. And so as we dig into this letter, we're going to find that there's no room for anything but that in the kingdom of God. That Jesus alone can be the source of our power, our energy, our faithfulness, that he is supreme. And so what we're getting into today, uh, you get this great moment where Paul, who's never been to this church before, gets a report from a young man named Epaphras. You saw this last week, verse 6. Uh, verses 6, 7, and 8. There's this moment where Epaphras travels out to Paul, and he says, You learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, in verse 7. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul's writing to this church, and he says, Epaphras told us all about you, and specifically, he told us about your love in the Spirit. And that phrase, your love in the Spirit, catalyzes the prayer that Paul's about to share with us. 
So let's dive into the text, and we'll spend some time working through this. Uh, I had a hard time fitting it all into my block of time last service, so we're going to try and make sure that we do a better job with you guys, all right? So if you have your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to assume you're there already. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, would you give us insight into this passage as we grow in understanding? Help us to know what you have for us. Lord, help us to see what you want us to see in this letter. In your name, amen. So Paul hears on report from Epaphras about their love in the Spirit. And he goes nuts. He is so pumped to hear about this church in that city having that kind of impact, and it comes from their love in the Spirit. Now, that phrase is really important because it's not just kind of like this nice and easy phrase where it's like, oh, yeah, of course, your love in the Spirit. What Paul is talking about is that the Colossians had been so overtaken by the Spirit of God that love was pouring out of them. It's spirit-filled love. Now, the idea that we would want every follower of Jesus to experience is that you would be so filled by the Spirit that the overflow is what people experience. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, that those things are what people experience from you, not because you're a great person or you're a religious person or you memorize some scriptures or whatever, but because the Spirit of God is so present in you that he takes over, that his characteristics, his qualities pour out of you and other people experience them through you. And Paul is seeing this on report from Epaphras and saying, yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm excited about. And so he says, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And just a little kind of Christian strategy session. If you're a follower of Jesus, a great strategy is if you're going to pray for somebody, Tell them what you're going to pray for them. Tell people what your prayer is for them as a family, as a couple, as a young person, as an old person. That's part of the encouragement. This is what Paul does. He tells the Colossians, this is what I'm praying for you. How could that be exciting to them? When they see God at work in them and they know Paul's prayer for them, they see the power and the effectiveness of prayer. If somebody's praying for you and they tell you, this is what I'm praying for you, and you start to see God work those things in your life, that can be testimony to you of the power of prayer. It's a great strategy, and Paul does this. He tells them, this is what I prayed for you. So here's Paul's prayer. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's Paul's prayer for the Colossians. 
that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So let's break that down, and then there's a lot of things that come out of that. So the first thing that we see is that you will be filled, or you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Uh, the will of God is one of those big questions that we love to ask about. What is God's will for my life? Kristen and I are wrestling with it even just in this exact moment. Lord, what's your will? What do you, what do you have for us in this season? And while there's a, a great mystery to the will of God, there's also a very practical reality to the will of God. The way that we like to talk about it as a church, and this is not a formal official statistic, we just kind of made it up, but it feels right, is that about 95% of the will of God is already presented to you in his word. And there's maybe 5% variation of like each of you individually, how you might go about living that out. Again, I just made that up. But it feels kind of right to me, so I'm sharing it with you. God's will for our lives is something that we can actually grow into and learn about. How does that happen and why is that so important? Uh, I'm going to go back and forth between Colossians 1 and Romans 12, and there's a lot of back and forth connection between these two. And sometimes Paul gets into these things where his stuff is really aligned. We'll get a lot of Ephesians as we're going through Colossians. Some people even believe he wrote those two letters in the same day. That's how aligned they are, what's coming out of him. Romans 12 and Colossians 1 have that feel. So if you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 12. We're going to skip verse 1. We'll come back to it. Don't worry. We're going to skip verse 1, and we're going to read verse 2. Paul says this. This is the same writer, different church. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's prayer, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So how is a person filled with the knowledge of his will? Paul tells the Romans two things that they need to do in order to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Thing number one is do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Do not be conformed to this world. So the first thing that Paul's concerned with, that he's shaping in the Colossians, is as all of these other philosophies and ideologies are coming into you, you need to defend against them by not being conformed to their way of thinking. It's critical that you combat the philosophies of the day, the ideologies of the day, the things that people think in your community with truth. Don't be conformed by them. And then he goes on and talks about, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So both sides of those things are essential. Now let me just ask you, do you believe that there are um, messages being taught to you by the world right now that are not from God, not from his scripture. Do you believe that? Okay. If you're not nodding, you should be. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a great example of this, uh, it's Mother's Day, moms. A wonderful example is Instagram. Instagram is trying to teach you something about how to be a mom. It's trying to teach you that if you are not skinny, beautiful, well put together, organized, have a perfectly clean house, take your kids to park days six times a day, carry out play dates at least 84 times a week, and have your kids simultaneously in public school and homeschool, you are not doing your job right as a mom. And it's just scroll after scroll after scroll of mom knowledge that is overwhelming. 
And moms are drowning in expectation. Drowning in how do I, how do I live up to what that lady's doing? How do I follow what that thing is? And that's counter-teaching. And you could apply that to any area. You could, you could go to any little subset of our culture and we are getting message after message after message about how we are supposed to be and those things are not from God. And Paul's saying, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let that be your source of authority and teaching, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is something that the Bible is actively trying to do is change the way that we think, change our worldview, change our understanding the set of truths that we operate from. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of this dark age. Uh, There's a lot that's in there. But he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle in this life is not against flesh and blood. Paul is actually writing into a church, and he's trying to help them understand that when you come to faith in Jesus, you start to see the world differently. You know that it's not just a biological ball of dirt and flesh and all of the things that are the universe. It's not that. It is a spiritual place. And we'll talk about that word spiritual in just a minute. There is soul to each person. And so when we engage this world, we're not engaging it on a physical, biological level. Like that's besides the point almost. Our wrestle is for the soul and with the spiritual world, okay? So that's the way that Paul teaches us to engage. He's helping us change our mind. So as a Christian, you should know that if there's somebody that is frustrating you, let's just use this as an example. Let's say it's a neighbor or uh, you run into the same person at school drop-off every day and they say the same thing and it just drives you nuts, whatever it is, whatever the, the source of frustration is, Paul is trying to teach you as a follower of Jesus to change your mind about how you perceive that person. Don't see them as a frustrating biological creature. See them as a soul that is in need of redemption and reconciliation that needs to be ministered to and loved and cared for. This is how Jesus can teach us things like pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Because that battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces that are at work behind that person that are going on in their life. He's changing the way that we think. We see it again in 2 Corinthians 5. I think it's verse 16. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. You're not just a person. There's a, there's a soul that needs caring. And as followers of Jesus, we're being trained to see the soul and not just the, not just the person, not just the body in front of us. There are a lot of directions that you could go to apply that in terms of how we interact with people. So the Bible is actively trying to transform the way that we think to change our minds to be like Jesus. How does Jesus see us? Not as frustrating human beings that, that have pet peeves that do things that drive them nuts, but as souls that he loves and cares for. That's how he can leave the 99 and pursue the one. That's how he can pursue the lost coin. And the, I mean, th- these are the stories that he's told us that the soul is loved and sought after. So Paul is praying this for the Colossians. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now when Paul talks about the word spiritual, 
He isn't going to kind of the way that we use the word spiritual in our modern era. Maybe, you know, not necessarily in this church specifically, but in our modern era, you might have even heard somebody say, well, I'm not really religious, but I'm very spiritual. Uh, you, you can go, like we were at uh, Buffalo Exchange in Ventura the other day, and there were uh, spiritual classes, and they were like yoga and meditation and all that kind of thing. Like it's just the idea that spiritual is anything mystical, anything kind of outside of, outside of you, and, and it's very vague and, and you know, ambiguous, but that's not how Paul references spiritual things. When Paul talks about spiritual, he's talking very specifically about the Holy Spirit, or very specifically about the spiritual forces that are enemies of God. There is light and darkness. And he's referencing that spiritual world when he talks about the idea of being spiritual. So for us, when we talk about uh, you know, spiritual in the church, again, we're not talking about vague, mystical spiritualism. We're talking specifically about being filled by the Holy Spirit. And so as we understand this, we see Paul's prayer is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all Holy Spirit-filled wisdom and understanding. Colossians, you guys are facing darkness that is crashing in on your church. People trying to teach you a different way of living, trying to bring in other ideas. We are praying for you that you would be filled by the Holy Spirit, that you would stand firm in the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives you to combat the things that are coming at you. You need the Spirit of God to stand up against the things that are coming your direction. That's what we're praying for you. And so as followers of Jesus, one of our duties, one of our jobs is to lean on the Spirit of God for all wisdom and understanding. We need to go deep into His presence in our lives for our decision-making, for our living, for our uh, engaging with the culture around us. When you think about how that plays out, it means things. It means that when you are going to places where you're going to interact with the world, if you're going to work, if you are honestly on Facebook or Twitter or someplace where you are engaging with people of the world, he's saying, don't just be shooting from the hip. Don't just be winging it. That's not helpful. My prayer is that as you engage this dark world around you, that you would be filled with all Holy Spirit wisdom as you speak. Do you seek that when you engage the world? Is that part of your way of operating, that you go to the Spirit of God and say, I'm about to have this conversation. I need your wisdom. I need your words. I, need you. I want your voice coming out. I want to see these people, not, not according to the flesh, but I want to see their soul. I want to see what it is that you have for them, and I want to speak through your Spirit to that person. Help me, Holy Spirit, walk in your ways. Paul's praying this. For this church, you're in a dark place. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you will experience the wisdom and understanding that comes from the Spirit of God. So what happens if these prayers are effective? Paul goes on and he tells them what happens in them if his prayer works. <laughs> if his prayer for them, if the things that he's praying for them start to happen in their lives, what are the things that are going to come out of that? And that starts in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
So here's how you can read this. If you are being filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that is going to play itself out in you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So let's talk about those four things for just a moment. First up, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, There are two ways to read that, and I'll say this one, and fully pleasing to God. Uh, The challenging way or the inappropriate way to read that is that there is a life that we can live that somehow earns uh, the favor of God, the pleasure of God, his approval, his salvation. That we are somehow working for God's approval is not anywhere in the gospel. You can read through Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians. You can read through any of Paul's letters, any of John's letters, and you will not find us living a life so that we get God's approval. It's actually flipped around, and it's since you are filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, you can live a life that is worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to him. So what does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the Lord? You, as a follower of Jesus, are carrying his name. And we're talking about being conformed into the image of his likeness. So when you go out into the world, you are going out as an ambassador. You're going out as somebody who carries the name of Jesus. And Paul is calling on the Colossians to live their lives, filled by the Holy Spirit, in a way that carries the name of Jesus into the darkness. A life that is consistent with the person and work of Jesus. If you were with us over the last four weeks, not including last week, we went through a series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. The three main objectives of that were to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. As followers of Jesus, we are growing into the image of Jesus, and as we live our lives, the idea is that people would be meeting Jesus when they meet us. Now, you don't become Jesus. You are not becoming a God or anything like that, but you are imitating Jesus representing Jesus. It's so, it's devastating when people in the world have, uh, have been open to the gospel until somebody that carries the name of Jesus uh, crushes them in some way, shape, or form. A trusted parent, uh, uh, whatever, I'm sorry, whatever the situation, there are many, many broken situations. And part of, the, part of the responsibility of all believers is to understand what it means to say, I follow Jesus, and to carry that gently and truthfully into this world and to represent him well. But we can't do that on our own. That is only filled by the Spirit that we can, that we can carry that name of Jesus gently and truthfully into this world and represent him to the world around us. That's the only way. And so Paul's praying that, and if they are filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, And it does produce this life where we are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he says, fully pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him. I want to go back to Romans chapter 12, and now we're going to look at verse 1. We did verse 2. We're going back to verse 1. So Romans 12, 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
So Paul's call to live a life fully pleasing to God is very similar to his call here to the Romans that they would live their lives as offering their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, we don't come from a sacrificial culture, right? That's not something that we operate in. Uh, First century Jews operated in a sacrificial system that you can read through in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It's fascinating. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's confusing at times. But the Jews weren't the only ones that operated in a sacrificial culture. Uh, I'm going to use the word pagans to describe uh, the other group of people. We can also call them Gentiles sometimes, but pagans were actually a specific religion. A pagan religion was a religion that worshipped these uh, Greek and Roman gods. It was paganism. And the idea of paganism did include sacrifice. That went anywhere from uh, sexual sacrifice to uh, human sacrifice to food sacrifice. There were many different things that were sacrificed over the generations and in different communities, but it was a different kind of sacrificial system than what the Jews were experiencing. It was one that was offering up sacrifice in order to appease angry gods, to try and get them to relent or to give blessing whereas the sacrificial system of Israel was designed to maintain relationship, to stay in covenant. Either way, they were very familiar with sacrifice. And Paul's inviting them into a new way of thinking. And now the sacrifice is not an animal, it's not food, it's not anything like that. Paul is inviting them into a new way of thinking where he's saying, offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice, not a sacrifice that needed to die because Jesus died once for all. But you're offering up your bodies as a daily, just think of the sacrifice that you used to make where you were trying to uh, maintain relationship with God or get something from God and, and put those out there. And now I want you to think of your life as an offering. That every day, imagine coming to God and saying, here, I'm giving you my best. I'm giving you what I have to offer my life, my choices, my words, my relationships, my finances, all that I have is yours. And Paul's inviting the Colossians to live a life that is fully pleasing to God and, and it brings this idea of sacrifice into mind where he's calling them to live a life that as they think about the decisions that they make and the words that they speak, there is an active worship that is going on in the choices that, that you make. I know we've said this like 12,000 times, so, but I'm going to say it again, that worship is not limited to what we do in this room when we sing and raise our hands and I don't know, dance, I guess. <laughs> it's not limited to this space or these moments where Zach and the guys are up here and they hit the right chord and then worship happens. Like, that's not, that's not what worship is limited to. <laughs> telling you my experience. Worship is, is absolutely something that, that manifests in our lives with our bodies, our, our choices, our actions. And if we're going to make an impact in this dark world, and one of the things that we need to adopt in our minds is that the life that we need to live needs to be constant worship. And a great way to do that is to evaluate with your community group, with your spouse, with your family. Just talk it through. 
This doesn't need to be a hyper-private, hyper-careful thing, but just talk through your day, your conversations, and just say, I, I, I believe I was honoring to the Lord in that conversation. Or if you have something coming up and you know it's coming, say, I, I want to make sure that as I go through this, this presentation, this conversation, this confrontation, whatever's coming up, I want it to be honoring to the Lord. Pray through it, Lord. What can I do? How can I, how can I present this to you, fully pleasing to you? It's not so that he'll save you or so that he'll approve of you. You already have that. It's because you love him and you desire to live in a life of worship with him. All right, back to Colossians. He continues on. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That is a, that is a great sentence that oftentimes we lose track of what those things actually mean. They're almost like poetic and, and big and beautiful, but, but we don't quite see or understand what they mean. This isn't just Paul kind of giving like a, a, a frivolous blessing at a wedding. This is still in the category of what Paul wants for the Colossians. He says, may you be strengthened with all power. It is going to be challenging to do life in Jesus in the place that you are, Colossae. You are going to need the strength and the power of God to simply endure the challenges that are coming your direction that you're going to be facing. The idols that come up against us that try and crowd in, you are going to need the strength of God to endure. May you be strengthened with all power for all endurance. Paul's desire is that they would withstand the test of time through the power that God provides. Then he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and patience. This word patience in this context could be an entire message in and of itself in that we as a Christian community can at times be impatient with the world and its reluctance to change. It can be frustrating to us. Uh, we can feel like we're on an island. We're being persecuted. Uh, it just, we, we respond to things in a certain way like we are, we are victims. And one of the things that Paul is trying to get the Colossians to, to do is to understand, look, your battle's not against flesh and blood. The darkness is out there. Absolutely, it's going to come crashing in. Be strengthened with power for patience. To be able to know that God is at work, and that he is holding all things together. We're going to talk about that next week. And that you can trust that God is at work. That he is faithful to his name and to his promise. So having patience is part of us being filled by the Spirit of God. And Paul is continuing to pray this over these people. So he says, endurance and patience with joy. Now I would dig into that a bunch more, but I'm going to go straight into giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, why can we operate the way that we are operating? Why can we even be filled with the Spirit of God? It's because we have been qualified by God to experience his inheritance. So this goes to our identity. As people, we tend to struggle with, uh, does God love me? Am I approved by God? Am I doing enough? Uh, like, those are the kinds of things that we tend to worry about 
But what we hear from Paul in the book of Romans and here in the book of Colossians is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus or here that we are qualified by him to share in the inheritance. Now I want you to hear what he's saying. Jews probably, I won't say probably, uh, according to the book of Hebrews as we studied that, Jews had the attitude of entitlement to the inheritance of God. And so there was almost a sense of inviting them into the Jesus story to understand the fullness of that inheritance. The Gentiles that were coming to the story had a different perspective. These are people that had done, according to the scriptures, horrific things. They had been enemies of God, hostile in mind. They had done terrible, terrible things. The idea of feeling qualified felt very far from their minds and hearts. And Paul is writing to them and saying, you need to know that you've been qualified by Jesus to share in the inheritance. There's no, like, there's no status rankings where the Jews get this much inheritance and you get this much because you were pagans for so long and you worshiped false gods. He's saying you've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light you are brought into the family of God. So here's the thing that you need to hear as you, as Paul is praying this over the Colossians, he's also reminding them of this incredible status. He's telling them, you have been transformed, you've been saved, you've been declared righteous, and you are recipients of the full inheritance that God has for you. So as a follower of Jesus, what should you then believe? That I've been qualified by Jesus, to share in the inheritance. That's not a statement of arrogance. That's not a statement of, uh, of not appreciating. In fact, he calls on us to give thanks because we're qualified. He's telling us that in the face of anything and everything that we face, we can experience joy when we face trials because we've been qualified to share in the inheritance. We have the fullness of what God has for us waiting for us. Paul's teaching the Colossians even as he's praying for them. The last section, and I've just got a couple of, oh, you guys are amazing, thank you. That was down to two minutes and they gave me four extra minutes just because they saw that I still had verses 13 and 14 to go. It's like time just magically extends, I love it. All right, here we go, verses 13 and 14 with renewed sense of vigor and not quite the rush. All right, here it says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul starts with a prayer and then he goes to the results of that prayer and then he goes into this blessing, may you be strengthened, and now he's going into a doctrinal statement. Now, if you've ever been bored by the idea of a doctrinal statement, you should change your total mind and complete, just obliterate boredom from the idea of a doctrinal statement. Paul is making a statement of theology a statement of what is true because of what God has done. So I want you to look at the language in this. It's huge. He has delivered us is a past tense. So Paul's writing to the Colossians and he's telling them in the midst of all this darkness, you need to know that he came into your situation and he delivered you out of or from the domain of darkness. Now that word domain is a, it's a wild word. It means authority or lordship. 
So you have been delivered out of the authority of darkness. Now this is where things get kind of challenging for us because a lot of times we don't fully grasp what was true before we came to know Jesus. The way the Ephesians, or Paul writes it to the Ephesians, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. Here to the Colossians, he says, you were under the authority of darkness, but you have been transferred from that authority, from that lordship, from being under that rulership into the kingdom of his beloved son. That has profound implications on your life. You, as a follower of Jesus, are no longer under the authority of the enemy. There are moments when the enemy attacks us. Uh, we've had situations in our life where you know, kids have woken up in terrors, where we've, we've felt the darkness in our, even in our home. Part of our responsibility in those moments is not to cower in fear, but to acknowledge the truth that we are not under the authority of darkness any longer. We stand confidently in the, in the work of Jesus to transfer us from that authority to the kingdom of his beloved son. So in those moments, you stand in truth, not in the lie that Satan is trying to lie to you and tell you that he still has domain over you. He does not. He can lie to you, and you can believe his lies, but he has no authority over you because you've been transferred from that authority, from that domain, into the kingdom of his beloved son. So your new identity, your new citizenship is one of the kingdom of his beloved son. You belong to Jesus. You are a part of his kingdom. You've been transferred out of the darkness and placed in this new kingdom. You are now responsible to stand in your new identity. This has profound implications on things like the internal anxieties that many of us struggle with, the emotions that overwhelm. We find ourselves struggling with the, the internal battle, the, the who am I, am I worthy, can I accomplish, can I do anything good? And Paul is writing to the Colossians and he is reminding them of this profound truth. You're no longer under the domain of darkness. That's not who you are anymore. That's who you were. You were absolutely there. You got used to living under that. You believed those lies. You lived in that place for so long, but you've been transferred now. And now you belong to Jesus. And he is your authority. And he speaks truth over your life. And he has brought you into a new kingdom. And you can stand in that authority and in that kingdom. And you apply that to your life. Paul's trying to help teach these Colossians how they can live as followers of Jesus in the midst of all of this darkness and constant attack. You stand on your new identity. He says, we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in Jesus, you have been bought out of your old way of life, out of that darkness, out of that sin, and you've been given forgiveness. So this is why we don't live in guilt and shame. This is why we don't live under a cloud of condemnation. This is why God can say so confidently that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has given us the forgiveness of sins. That's now an identity marker. I am forgiven 
and I'm being presented as holy and blameless before the living God. So I want to encourage you with this. If anything, I just, I, as I was reading through this passage, I get the sense that Paul is just trying to lift the heads of these people to reach through whatever distance he's at from them and to just kind of put his hand on their chin and lift their eyes up to see the new reality of their faith. You don't have to live under the authority of the darkness anymore. Now you get to stand in your new identity, so stand up. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are qualified. God wants to strengthen you and empower you to endure, to have patience, and to do it with joy. He wants to fill you with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, giving thanks for everything. So I want to do that same thing with you, and I want to encourage you to lift your eyes and see what is true because of what Jesus has done. Now, some of this plays into how we, how we worship. So the band's going to come up here. They're going to lead us in singing. And what happens when they lead us in singing is we exalt the name of Jesus, we lift up what is true. Some of this and some of the songs that we sing are designed to help us proclaim truth even if we're struggling to believe it ourselves. That's part of the process is identifying that truth. We take communion every single week. Every week we produce these or provide these things and we have this cracker that represents the body of Jesus that was given up for us. And we have juice that represents the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We do this every single week because we believe it is critical for us to center our lives on the finished work of Jesus. He's transferred me from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son through his finished work in which I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I participate in remembering that work. That's part of my worship. We give offering, we invite offering every week, we live generously, God has lavishly covered us with grace and we respond to him. Both individually as a church, we're gener or as a person we live generously, but as a church we seek to live generously, to be faithful, to be generous people, to represent God, to carry his name. And we have our prayer teams. Uh, we, because of the, the space issues in the room, we put our prayer teams in the back and we want you to, to not hesitate to take advantage of them. We've noticed that our our ability to pray for people has gone from a few people every Sunday to you know, one or two, and it's, it's discouraging to us, but I want to encourage you to battle through it. Even though our prayer teams are in the back and they may be harder to find, press on. There's power in prayer, and we want to pray for you and encourage you in the same way that Paul prayed for and encouraged the Colossians. So all of this is going to be happening as we, as we close out our time worshiping. We want to center our minds, our hearts, our, our are statements of belief on the finished work of Jesus. So let's stand together and let's worship him together.